Hey, Ronnie here. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the Creator Kitchen. Whether you enjoy this episode or the entirety of Marketing Under the Influence or not, if you have an idea or a voice inside you screaming to get let out, and you would benefit from the support of talented, creative people across a broad spectrum of fields, people who will push you creatively like never before, I encourage you to apply to the Creator Kitchen. I'll pop a link in the show notes, or you can go to creatorkitchen.com wherever you browse your favorite websites. As for Jay, Melanie, and my fellow chefs, thank you. Marketing on the Influence wouldn't be what it is today without you. And now, let's get on with the show. You're listening to Marketing Under the Influence with Ronnie Higgins. I think it I think it comes down to as a child, there's this innate need to feel like you belong and that you have your people. And I remember I, I grew up in a town in North Carolina and I just from the from the youngest memory, I remember wanting to escape, not leave, escape. If you follow me on Twitter, you know that I am a fangirl at heart. I love all things David Tennant and Neil Gaiman. I love Star Wars. I love I love um, Lord of the Rings. I love fantasy. If there's a dragon in it, I am there. I loved um, Flight of Dragons as a kid. It was my favorite, absolute favorite movie growing up. Um, that and Sleeping Beauty. Um, and so that's kind of who I've always been. I've been that kid that knew what the world could be, saw what the, saw what the world was instead, and was like, fine, I'll just read all the books instead. I'll hide there. I'll hide in all of the books. That's Christina Garnett. Christine is the sole proprietor of Pocket CCO, an aptly named consultancy and advisory business that enables brands to work with her, the fabled fairy godmother of marketing Twitter and customer community extraordinaire. But what she does for a living doesn't really matter right now. Because Christina was once a kindergartner in North Carolina, Southern drawl and all, who is utterly disappointed with the world around her and desperately looking for an exit. Growing up, I was very much that, like, precocious child that was always raising her hand. I was very, like, Hermione, but if Hermione had a Southern accent instead of British. <laughs> but I had uh, I had a horrible kindergarten teacher, so I was one of, like, the first people to be excited about school. I could not wait. And I get there, and, and the best way to describe Mrs. Haynes is that she was envisioned by Roald Dahl. Um just this crone of a woman who kind of took the light out of my eyes when growing up. I'm left-handed, and for whatever reason of the time of the time of like the era and just being in a southern town, um, my grandparents had to fight for me not to basically be treated like being left-handed was a deformity and needed to be corrected. And so I kind of went from being very excited to, about education to being kind of confronted with the idea that I was everything that was wrong. And so um, it was very hard for me as a child. I wanted to learn. I wanted to be accepted, just like every kid does. Like, you can look at the pictures of me and tell when I went through kindergarten because, like, my whole, like, the light from my eyes kind of disappeared. 
I was lucky enough that I kind of had good karma for first and second grade. I had Mrs. Garland for first grade and I had Mr. Roseboro for second grade. And I remember their names because they all had a very profound impact on me for better and for worse. Mrs. Haynes, because she was evil. And then Mrs. Uh, Mr. Roseboro and Mrs. Uh, Miss Garland, because they were just kindness incarnate. They were lovely. Taught me how to read, made me see the world for all that it was and all that it could be. And that if you needed to escape, that books were such a wonderful way to arm yourself and protect yourself from a world that wasn't as good as it could be. I so badly want to go on a tangent about why we need more teachers like Miss Garland and Mr. Roseboro and how we should pay them a lot more. I want to, but I won't. But I gotta say, I hope we'll someday recognize educators for what they really are, the stewards of humanity's future. Because if it weren't for her benevolent first and second grade teachers, Christina might not have ever met her kindred spirit in a girl named Alice. So I came across Alice in Wonderland through, or Alice's Adventures in Wonderland through the movie by Disney first. I even had a little dress when I was like three or four years old that was like this blue little dress with a white little apron kind of detail. And it was my Alice dress. Um, I read the book. I want to say I was like maybe eight or nine and absolutely fell in love with it. My dad's a bit of an Angliophile, so I kind of was raised on British literature and raised on like British movies and culture and stuff. So it just felt like the kind of perfect world made for me. And so what was really interesting was I, I very much associated myself with Alice, not just because she's a protagonist. I know that like as most readers, we tend to like immediately cling to the protagonist if there isn't someone that's like us, because that's our entry point. That's the main character. But for her, Alice is me in a lot of ways. I, I know that there's tons of other people who, who love those books, and I, I, I won't claim it as my own. But um, a girl who is doing her best to be good, but is curious at heart, wants to be literally anywhere else from where she grew up, but there is a domineering woman who wants to punish her for just existing. That was my life. Where perfect wasn't good enough. So if I made an A minus, it had to be an A. If I made an A, it wasn't an A plus. So like, why don't you have straight 100s? Why aren't you absolutely perfect? And so Alice tries really hard in the book to like follow the decorums of society. Like she tries. And it's never good enough. Like she's going to be sentenced to like having her head like off with her head, which is which is hyper exaggerated punishment for what she's done and so I felt very much like that as a child because I grew up trying to be perfect like I didn't do drugs I didn't sneak out I made straight A's you never had to worry about me you never had to ask if my homework was done like never had to tutor me like we're fine I'll take care of it myself I was as close to like a self-service teenager as you were going to get and it just became very obvious growing up that it was never going to be perfect. And then Coraline came. And it's very much, it's very much Neil Gaiman's version of Alice in Wonderland. And so a dark version of Alice in Wonderland sounds absolutely made for me. And Neil Gaiman is my favorite writer. So growing up reading Alice and then 
being old enough, I was in college when Coraline came out. And once again, I saw myself in that in that story. Um, domineering mother, complacent father. Um, you go into the darker world. And so once again, hyperbolically, I felt connected. I was like, this is absolutely my story. And so I think it's been really profound for my life because I've had to kind of figure out how do I leave Wonderland? How do I reconcile? Because the light, like the life that I left is still there. Like it's still not ideal. But what can I do to find my own happiness in that world? For some, Alice in Wonderland and Coraline are silly, whimsical fairy tales made for children. But for Christina, Lewis Carroll and Neil Gaiman's stories were practical guides for dealing with the constant contradictions in her life. By living vicariously through Alice and then Coraline, Christina learned to be careful of what she wished for and to see Wonderland for what it is. A place to return from, armed with the perspective and courage to be the change she wished to see in the world. Not too long after reading Coraline, Christina made the hard decision to cut ties with her mother. The two haven't spoken in 16 years. Christina's estrangement is part of a growing number of people who've gone full no contact with a family member. According to a 2020 Cornell study, 27% of Americans reported being estranged from a family member. The study also suggests that because many people are reluctant to discuss such a personal and stigmatized topic, we'll never truly understand the magnitude of this phenomenon. All we can do is hope for positive outcomes, like Christina's. I know a lot of millennials who are, they don't have a parenting guidebook, they have a what not to do guidebook from their parents. And that, that's how I raise my children. I, I purposefully lead them and treat them the way that I wanted to be treated instead of how I was treated. And so it's been really lovely to see like my daughter, I get to see my daughter grow up and see like, that's what I would have been like if I had been adored. If I had been taught that like, oh, you're curious? That's awesome, that's great. Oh, you wanna do that? Do it. And so I think it's it's been really it's been really lovely to see that change. The best example of that was um, when I was little and in school, like I said, I was Hermione, so I could win like every single award, but I was talkative. That's the one thing I've always been is talkative in class. And so I remember my mom saying, I think I was like in kindergarten or first grade. And she was like, you're never gonna get the citizenship award because they always give that to someone who's quiet and someone that everyone likes. So like, you're never getting that award. You can literally get everything else. And she was right, I never got it. You know who did get it? My daughter, who does talk in class and is lovely and brilliant and kind and funny as can be and quirky, but she got it. And that felt like the biggest win for me. It's been nice meeting you, goodbye. Estrangement is a complex and personal issue. So it's important to remember that everybody's journey with estrangement is different and that Judging it simply as good or bad isn't helpful or nuanced. One thing's for sure though, more and more people are breaking generational cycles. Christina thinks she knows why. She asserts that an entire generation has learned to cope with how the world is versus how it could be by getting lost in books and other forms of media. 
everyone has their Alice or their Coraline. It's just, it, it is, where did you hide? It could have been a video game. It could have been sports. It could have been a movie. It could have been whatever. But escapism is an intrinsic need. I mean, we talk about fight or flight all the time. Where is the flight when you can't leave? You're 12. You can't move. What are you going to do, run away? They'll just find you the next day, and then your life will be even harder because they're going to punish you on top of how they already treat you. And so I think when you're thinking about these books and you're thinking about whether it's a book or a movie or a musical or whatever it is, that when someone is talking about something they genuinely love, their face lights up. It's always tied to something that they used to escape. They're always, they whether they realize it or not, they are give, they're showing you their safe space. Like, I want to talk to you about this movie that I absolutely love. When someone's telling you what their favorite movies are or what their favorite artist is, they're giving you such a singular cheat code into what matters to them, but we treat it in such a trivial way. Like, talk about Taylor Swift, because everyone's talking about Taylor Swift this year. There's a lot of girls who've had their heart broken who were told, that's stupid. Why are you crying? It was just a relationship. And then you have someone like Taylor Swift who's literally writing like Aureas about breakups and elevating that as an entire process. And then it's like, it's not stupid. It's not trivial. Even Taylor Swift can feel these feelings. And so you have a lot of people who put down people based off of what they love, like they're nerds or they're geeks or they're losers because they like this and that. But they've chosen that because that is what they feel connected to. That's what makes me feel safe. That's what makes me feel not alone. That's what makes me feel like I can't make my situation better, but at least I know that I am not alone in feeling that. And that's something that I am grateful for the internet as I feel like it's really given a voice for people to share their trauma in a world that won't heal them. And so the only solace you really have is I can't make you feel better, but I can make you feel less alone. As marketers, particularly in B2B marketing, there's this prevailing notion that if we are to be taken seriously, Content must be purely educational and rooted in traditional business communication norms. The most frustrating part about this mindset, for me at least, is that it's been proven over and over and over and over again that humans have an innate ability to extract the tactical and often more personalized lessons from the abstract of a well-told story. Christina's story serves as proof that these stories don't even need to be business fables to influence our audience. Keep that in mind the next time you're quote-unquote writing for humans. All right, that's episode four. Thank you so much for trusting me with your attention. I, I really hope that you enjoyed Christina's story as much as I enjoyed telling it. If you haven't read Christina's piece on the vitality of escapism, please check out the show notes and heed her warning. Escapism is under attack. Whatever you do, make sure to rendezvous with me here next time to meet a marketer who found positive male role models in the pages of a sci-fi novel about space romans. Seriously. Most everyone-